Please do turn to me with me tonight to Matthew's Gospel, not Luke, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 22, and our text is just verse 42, Matthew 22 and 42, and I shall read this famous question, this question that the Lord Jesus asks. It follows, as we shall consider, two other questions. The first question was from the Sadducees, and the second question was from the Pharisees. We shall explain what their questions are, but this is quite Christ's question. It's the third one in the dialogue, Matthew 22, verse 42. What think ye of Christ? The ultimate question. This towers above any other question that I can ask you tonight. Oh, you might say, that question of the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? But that's how. This question is whether, whether you are saved. This is, as we shall Consider later and sing in the hymn of John Newton. This is the test. We speak about the litmus test, the acid test. This is the test. What do you think of the Lord Jesus Christ tonight? I can't answer that question for you. Your mum, your dad, they can't answer that question. Only you know in your heart what you really think of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate question. Well, here in Matthew 22, this passage is cross-referenced in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's therefore very, very important. It's given us in different ways, parts of it, and then here, together, these three questions. Why do we ask questions? We ask questions sometimes because we need to know something. Sometimes we might ask a child, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, maybe you don't know. Maybe you don't know yet, or maybe like me when I was young, it changed every week. One job and then another job and then this job. When I was very little, I liked the idea of being a milkman. You don't have them much. And then I was fascinated by dustbin carts for about 48 hours. What do you want to be? And then you have a grander idea. Maybe it's a job that, maybe it's far beyond you. Who will you marry? Well, we don't know the answer to that, probably, till later in life. Where do you want to live? Well, these are questions we ask, and we want to know the answer. Sometimes we ask them just to make conversation, because maybe we're interested in the other person. We want to try to understand them and see how they think. We don't know the answer, so we ask the question. But there's another type of question. We ask the question because we want to make the person think. That's the 
question that the Lord Jesus asks. He asks it. He knows the answer. He could read the hearts of all men, all women, all boys, all girls. He knew the answer, but he wanted to make the person think. I don't know what you think of Christ, but I want to ask you the question tonight. What do you think of Christ? What do you value in Christ? How do you view him? I don't know the answer. Christ did as he asked this question. But there's a third, maybe there's others, there's a third type of question. We ask because we don't know something. We ask to make the person think a bit like a teacher does at school. But the third kind of question, it's a trick question. We want to put somebody in a trap. We want to make them fall over. We want to show them how small they are and how silly and foolish. We want to put them down, make them seem small, usually to big us up. If you ask those questions, they're not kind. Trying to trick somebody, fool them, make them feel little. And that's the type of question that the Sadducees and the Pharisees ask the Lord Jesus Christ. If you turn to Matthew 22 and verse 23, it says the same day came to him the Sadducees. They didn't believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. That was their particular hang-up. It tells us here they denied that there was a resurrection. So their question is a trick question. They're trying to catch Christ out by asking him a fanciful, theoretical question. It's absurd, really. Has this ever happened? The question is this. If a man died, and he's a bit like one of the men that used to be here, he had lots and lots and lots of brothers. How many brothers in your family? This man had seven. And the first one gets married. That's fine. That happens. He died. And there was no children. No issue, as the Bible sometimes said. There's no seed. There's no successor. If he was a farmer, there's nobody to take on the farm. And so his poor widow, she desires to get married. And the second son, the brother, comes along and says, well, wouldn't it be good? There is an advantage in marrying the brother of the one that's died. She wouldn't have to change her surname, maybe. She would be called Smith or some other name. That would make it easy. But then he dies, and then so on and so on. You get the picture. Seven brothers? Ridiculous. Has that ever happened? And of course, it's a trick question. Now, if there is a resurrection, Master, cynically, they say in verse 24, Master, teacher, the one that sit, thinks he knows all things, 
if the first die and then the second and so on to the seventh, who's going to be married in heaven? That's going to be a bit confusing, isn't it? Who will the wife say, husband, come here? Oh, what a silly question to try to trick the Son of God, the infinite, all-knowing God on high in the person of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to try and trick him. How foolish, how silly, how absurd. Well, that's not really the killer question that they hoped it to be. And the Lord Jesus says to them, Ye do err. Verse 29, You are so mistaken. How do you know what will happen after you die unless you know me? I'm the only one that knows about eternal life, heaven and hell, the judgment, the great accounting day. I'm the only one that knows what heaven will be like and who will or won't be married to who. You greatly err. You don't even know the Bible. You don't know the Scriptures. You don't know, verse 29, the power of God. God is altogether greater than your petty, silly, theoretical question. Verse 30, in the resurrection, people are not going to marry like we will have next Saturday. That's a provision of God for earth to help people. It's a God-given provision for many wonderful reasons. They won't marry, they won't be given in marriage, but they are as the angels of God in heaven. They'll be worshipping. They'll be lifting up Christ. They'll be looking into his eyes and seeing things that they can't imagine. They won't be bothered about who's married to who or who was married to who. One thing will be all their thinking. Christ on the right hand of the Father. And all day and night, as we says it, there won't be a night. They'll be worshipping God in heaven saying, Worthy, O Lamb of God, Holy, holy, holy. They'll be lifting him up higher and higher and higher and heaven won't be high enough for the heights that Christ should have. You silly, foolish, erring men. Well, that's the first question. But then there's a second question. Before that, did you hear in Luke, as we read it, when the first question was asked and Christ answered, they dare not ask any other question. They must have just had a glimpse of the power of Christ, that they weren't speaking to a man. They were speaking to the God-man. Their question and the questions that they asked stopped. They were ended. The ultimate question, the one 
that they will be silenced by. Here's the second trick question. The Pharisees heard. The Pharisees hated the Sadducees. They thought they could get one up. Now we'll have a go. Let's have our turn. When the Pharisees had heard what the Sadducees had said to silence, they were gathered together and they, one of them, asks another supposedly hard question to trick him, to tempt him, to test him. And this is the question. Another foolish question. Master, do you see the cynicism? He wasn't their master, but that's what they call him. Master, which is the greatest commandment? Sometimes we have those things, don't we? Who's the greatest footballer? Messi, Ronaldo. Who's the greatest cricketer? Who's the greatest prime minister? What's the greatest commandment? What a silly question. The Ten Commandments are one. They all reinforce each other. Nobody can say, I've kept that one and that one, because they are actually one. They're intended to work together. There is no higher, no lower, no point system, no ranking. You keep all or you keep none. This is the first and greatest commandment. The Lord Jesus, he sidetracks the question, but in a way he doesn't. He answers. He says the first four, let me summarize. This is the greatest commandment. Verse 37 Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind. The requirement of the first four commandments is so infinite, it needs three alls. And none of us have ever done that. The second, he summarizes the six commandments, five to ten, which are to do with our relationship, not with God, but with each other. And he says, this is how I summarize them, they're all really one, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two summaries of the Ten Commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Oh, isn't that genius? He's answered the question and he's not answered the question. He's not given them a ranking. He's not said this one. You can, you can minimize this one. Do you get it? The Pharisees. 620 or thereabouts laws in their rule book. Minute little rules that they'd made up. And the Lord Jesus breaks it all down to two and to really one. Do you love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul? Do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? What an answer. What a sublime answer to give. And then the Lord Jesus, he says this, verse 41, here's the proper question. The ultimate question. This wasn't a trick question. This was designed to help. 
he says to them, saying, What think ye of Christ? What an amazing question. The Lord Jesus didn't often speak about himself. He spoke about the kingdom of heaven. He spoke about the law, the prophets. He spoke about common day things and problems. He spoke about the heart. But here he goes right to the acid test. What do you think of me? You've tried to trick me. You, you, you've tried to catch me out. And now I'm going to ask a question that can change the direction of your life from going there to going there, from hell to heaven, from being a life of blessing and success to what you have at the moment, failure, sin, not meeting the mark, not meeting any of the standards of God. What a question. It's a very good study to do. If you read through the Gospels, it's a good thing to do devotionally. If you read through one of them, look for the questions that Christ asks. We had one last Sunday night, wonderfully. What profit a man if he should gain the whole world and forfeit, lose his own soul? What a provoking question. He said to a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, what a thought. The creator of all the world. Asking that you can ask for anything. And he has the power to give it to you if it's good for you. And then he said, why do you call me Lord? And you don't do what I say. That's challenging, isn't it? You call me Lord when you worship. You call me Lord when you pray. You say, Lord, help me. But you don't do what I ask you to do, which is to repent and to believe in me and to turn from your rule-keeping so-called. Then what a question is this. Which of you can add one cubit by worrying for another hour, for another moment to your life? That's another question. Who do people say that I am? A different version of the question we have tonight. Who do you say that he is? What about that question to Judas? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You've gone through the motions and lived with me and heard me and you've attended the Last Supper. You're now going to kiss me? the only one that could have saved and rescued your soul, and now you're betraying me with a kiss. And yet we could do the same. We could pretend. We could give not a kiss, but lip service to the Lord Jesus Christ. What questions he 
ask. But let's come to our text tonight. Who was and is the Christ? What think ye of Christ? This is the ultimate question. I've mentioned this before. I once stood a few years ago, I think it was, and then I sat at the bedside of a man who had hours to live in Bedford Hospital. He'd called through a friend and he wanted to make a confession. I said, you're not speaking to the right person. I'm not the one to talk to. You need to speak to your maker. Don't say anything to me. Don't tell me what you've done, the things, you crimes, the, the things you've stolen and anything else. You need to tell that to Christ. But what do you say to a man who's about to die, a woman who's about to die? What would you say to somebody, if you knew which you don't, who was about to have a car crash? And you had one question to ask them. Isn't this the question? What do you think of Christ, your maker, your judge, the one who will judge your life, the one who knows everything about you, the one who will judge fairly, rightly, honestly, no stone unturned, no secrets. What do you think of him? Isn't that the question? Wouldn't you ask such a person if you could, if you needed to, if you had five minutes a minute, what do you think of Jesus Christ? That's the test, the litmus test. So, let me break it down in three ways. Why should we think of Jesus Christ? Well, because naturally we don't make the time. Everything else gets in the way. Pleasure, studies, cares, worries, burdens, careers, jobs, rotors, diaries, planning, Facebook, everything crowds in. And so we have to ask this question, stop, think. What do you think of the Lord Jesus? That's why. Let me give you another reason. Satan will use a thousand different ways to take you from that question, to make you think of anything else but the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you to think of him. He doesn't want you think to think of a day of judgment. He doesn't want you to think of Calvary. He wants you to think of little things, trivial things. What you're going to do tomorrow morning. Somebody's thinking about that now. What you're planning to do for your next holiday, next summer. Somebody might be thinking of that now. All the distractions, the snares. That's why we need to think of Christ. We need to stop thinking about the less important things and think of Jesus Christ, the one that turned history before Christ, after Christ, the only perfect human being, 
the only one good enough to take away the price of sin, the only one that had two natures. There is only one, a perfect, divine, infinite, eternal being and a human being who live life like we do with all the temptations and the difficulties and the challenges and yet without one sin. We need to think of him because one day, as I've said, you will stand before him. Any boy, any girl, tonight, listen. Think of not your worst sin. Think of what you think of your least sin. Because do you know all of them will be opened like a book. There's too many to go in one book already in your life. And it will be even the smallest sin in your estimation, even though no sin is small, that is enough to take you away from God. That's why we need to think of Christ. But secondly, we need to think of him because the common thoughts of Christ, the things that most people think, they are unhelpful. Let me tell you some of them. In the days of Christ, when he lived those 33 years, people thought him of just a miracle worker, a wonder worker. Show us a sign. Give us something dramatic. That's what happens today in many churches. Make a man fall over. Do a miracle. Pretend. Speak in a language that you never learned, that people don't even understand. Show us something. That's what they thought Christ was, a magician. No more, no less. People think that today. They have a problem, a difficulty, and they say, if you're real, give me a sign, and then I'll believe. No, you won't. All the signs you need are in God's Word. Thousands. If all the books could be written to contain all the things John says at the end of his gospel, the world wouldn't be big enough to record them. Some people have wrong thoughts. They say, well, I've got my own God, and he looks a bit like this, he does this for me, and while I mix it a bit, I, I do the things that I want to do, not what he says, and I have a picture of God in my mind. He's like this and that. Oh, don't think that way. People have weird and wonderful things that they think about God. Strange things. Things that were never revealed. They're just distorted ideas. They're imagined. They're made up. They're false. They're wrong. No, what do you think of the Christ? that's revealed in the Word of God, that was revealed in the flesh, that's revealed in our lives when we ask it to be. Some people have a vague idea of Christ. They don't really have an opinion. They don't really know, because they've never looked, they've never asked. And so Christ asks the question, what do you think of me? I've shown you who I am, the second person of the Trinity, God made man. 
And yet you don't believe Sadducees, you don't believe Pharisees. You religious people, what do you think of me? Not what do you think of religion, not what do you think of what I wear, not what do you think of the resurrection, falsely so-called, but what do you think of me? A person, one that's real, one that you can know, one who has spoken so plainly. And he asks this question, what think you? It's personal. Forget that man, that woman next to you, your mum, your dad. That doesn't matter today. What they think, it will matter on the day of judgment, but it's not your concern, really. What do you think of Jesus Christ? Have you ever asked that question? Let me tell you what a true Christian thinks of Christ, because this might help you. A true Christian has the highest possible thought that a limited mind can possibly conceive. I think of Christ, and I think of one who is infinite in knowledge, infinite in power, one who had no beginning. Yes, he had a fleshly beginning, but he had no beginning because he was the creator, and he was with the Father in perfect union before time began. Can you understand that? What's your comprehension of Christ, the infinite, the eternal, the omniscient, the all-knowing, the omnipresent, everywhere, tonight, in your heart, in your home? And the one who is omnipotent, all-powerful. Oh, that makes me think. And I have a view of Christ, and I should have an even greater one, of someone who is so powerful, so knowledgeable, so able to save, so able to keep. I have a view of Christ as God, and he's the one I have to stand before, the one with whom we have to do, as the word of God says. And yet, at the same time, God, and yet he's able to feel, feel my life, feel my worries, my problems, my difficulties, my besetting sins, the ones I fall into again and again, my anger. Do you have an anger? Do you get angry, dads, with your children? You're told not to provoke them. Do you have impatience? We're told to be patient in all things. What's your sin? Christ knows your sin. He feels your passions, your desires, your wrong desires. And yet, you know, he's a lion and he's a lamb at the same time. He's a lion because he's powerful because he has the victory, and he's a gentle lamb. And the one that offers to become the shepherd of his sheep. And he, as the scriptures say, he is altogether lovely. Do you think that of him? 
you think of Christ, he's altogether lovely. Everything he asked me to do, everything he asked me to love, everything he asked me to hate, I gladly do it, love it, hate it. Because he asked me to do it, then he is altogether lovely. There's nothing in him that I would not desire, would not obey. Do you have trustful thoughts of Christ? What do I mean by that? When you think of Christ, do you think, I trust him, I love him, I obey him, I believe in him, I want him, I desire him, I must walk with him, I must love him all the days of my life. Is that what you think? Or don't you care? Do you have no thought? For the Son of God came down for me. What think ye of Christ? That's the question. That's the test. Forget every other question. Forget exams. Forget the questionnaires that we have to fill in. What do you think of that man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was faultless, blameless, sinless? And look at me, I'm the opposite. Sinful, blameworthy. Or oh, what do you think of Christ tonight? I have to ask that question. I don't know whether I will ask that question of you tonight. It's my duty. It's my responsibility. If I go out tonight, and I've not asked it, and I don't know the answer, where will you be? Where will you be in eternity? That's the question Christ is asking. Those that didn't believe there would be a resurrection from the dead, which there will be. For we have living souls that will rise, whether to be with God because we love him and have spiritual life, or whether we go away from God because we have a dead soul and we hate God and we have no time or thought for him. So that's the question tonight. Where do your affections lie? Nothing else matters. Not your home. Not your DIY project. Not your pleasure. Not your pursuit. Not your friendships. But the friendship you have with Christ alone. Let's turn to the hymn before we sing it. Please turn to hymn number 1149. John Newton wrote this hymn. Maybe, I don't know, was it not so far from here or was it when he was in London as a minister there? What think you of Christ is the test to try both your state, your spiritual state, and your scheme, your plan for life? You cannot be right in the rest of your life unless you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears in your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you, and mercy or wrath 
is your lot. The hymn develops, it says, there's all these other thoughts. You can add something. You can think well of yourself, but no, that won't do. Even verse 4, some style Christ as the pearl of great price. They even say the right things. He's the fountain of joys. Yet, their pleasure is what they feed upon. Their folly, and worse than that, their vice. And they cleave to the world and its toys. And like Judas, the Saviour, they kiss in insincerity, lip service. And while thy salute him betray, ah, what will profession like this, one which is mixed, insincere, what will that give in his terrible day? I'm modernizing the hymn, I apologize. Verse 5. If asked what of Jesus I think, though still my best thoughts are but poor, this is what I would say, and this is good. He's my meat and my drink, the living waters, the bread of heaven, my life and my strength and my store, my shepherd, my husband, my friend, my saviour, from sin and from thrall, my hope from beginning to end, my portion, my Lord, and my all. Can you say that verse 5 tonight? If you can, with all your heart, then I can say with great confidence, you love Christ and your home is heaven. And he will give you the peace and the comfort and the assurance that you love him and that you know him.